Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. Mr. Sensational Gino Vega coming to you, the tens of ones in the listening audience, with a very special episode 92 of the podcast right here by way of the IC Robots Radio Network. And before we kick off very special episode 92 today, let me just take a moment to once again remind you out there, if you are listening to this, if you are not already subscribed to the IC Robots Radio Network by way of whatever your preferred podcast platform may be, go ahead Search IC Robots Radio, that is I-S-E-E-R-O-B-O-T-S, as in I look at robots, but I see them, I see robots. Look up IC Robots Radio, hit like, hit subscribe, and you'll have access to every piece of content that comes down the pike. That includes this show, a show wherein myself, an ordinary average middle-aged person, plums the depths of my soul to provide you, the listener, with uh, takes, thoughts, opinions, and so on and so forth that you did not need, do not want, but are going to get anyway. There's that show. There is uh, our flagship World's Famous Show, hosted by station boss IC Robots himself. There is GeekFest Rants. There are occasional offerings uh, showcasing... Content from our patron-only channel. Patrons-only channel, which you can find by looking up supportthereport.com. Supportthereport.com. Name comes from the days when the Toys R Us Report podcast was, in fact, the flagship show on the network. Now, as I mentioned, it's the world's famous show. And you can take things even a step further. In fact, you should definitely take this step. Look up Audio Handbook of the Marvel Universe, and you will have access to Icy Robot's new project. Um, It has its own feed. I think he's been posting some of them on the uh, Icy Robot's Radio Network feed as well, but it, it does have its own dedicated feed. So search Audio Handbook of the Marvel Universe, and that is a great show that Icy Robot's has been cranking out lately, taking a look at different luminaries, different characters from the sometimes loved, sometimes maligned Marvel Universe. Um, whether you are a uh, true-believing super fan or you are an up-in-arms, anti-corporate hater of all things Marvel, it doesn't matter. Just listen to the show. It's, it's, it's great content. It's great audio. Um, the uh, Marvel content is really... Just a springboard to spend some time in the mind of IC Robots, and that mind is always an entertaining place to hang out for a few. With that housekeeping out of the way, let's continue a very special episode 92 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, and I am going to start things off with an update. I have been chronicling, um, how should I put this, some possible major life changes that will be taking place here in life sensational, in the life of Mr. Sensational, Gino Vega, myself. But they are possibly major changes that have come up kind of gradually and subtly and now are um, uh, facing even more of kind of a slow roll to fruition. And what I'm talking about is this. I've mentioned over the last few episodes 
that um, I'd started looking into getting a job as a substitute teacher. And I think a few people have asked me, you've mentioned this, but you didn't quite say why. And the reason that I haven't quite said why is, again, this whole thing was a very gradual uh, decision. It wasn't like I was hyper-motivated and one day decided, by God, I want to go hang out with a bunch of annoying kids all day and uh, teach them how to uh, read, write, arithmetic and respect their elders. Um, not that I really plan on doing any of that. But uh, no, I, this was a slow rolling thing that came out of the chasm. And then before I knew it, suddenly became real. So I'll give you a little bit of background as we move on with uh, this week's installment of the story. Um, I was working full time up until I think it was August of 2019. And uh, I was working a full-time job, more than full-time job. Um, it was an awful job. I hated it. It wasn't so much the job I hated. It was a god-awful, god-awful company, um, fiendishly evil CEO. And then when the, when the top is that poisoned, then it poisons everyone down. Even people that like I originally, like managers I was getting along with originally, everyone just gets demented by that evil from the top. So it was a very, very um, moribund place to work. It was very uh, soul-crushing, soul-sucking. And that job was a remote job before remote was a thing. I was remote before remote was cool. I was using Zoom when no one knew what Zoom was. There was no physical office for this company. Everyone was remote. Um, and it's kind of funny because I quit the job in August of 19 and then a few months later the pandemic started and then I was at home and my wife, Ms. Sensational, was using Zoom for all of her meetings and I thought, you know, I was like, I thought I was never going to have to see or hear Zoom again and now it's everywhere. There's no escaping it. So, um, yes, I was working that full-time job. My wife was working full-time, um, and it was just kind of a nightmare, very low quality of life, having both of us working full-time and working full-time in unhappy circumstances. Her circumstances were happier than mine uh, were. Um, they got happier over time. At the time, she had kind of a weird boss, too. But, it, but her job was just better overall um, in every metric possible. But both of us were working full-time, and... Two people working full-time in a family, as far as I'm concerned, is sort of for the birds. I know it's the American dream. I know it's what we're all conditioned to think um, folks are supposed to be doing. And for some people, I, I don't mean to be glib. I don't mean to be flip. I mean, there's just certain realities of this world. Some people, just to even be able to make ends meet, to uh, have food, shelter, etc., requires more than one person working outside the home for pay possibly even full-time. And I get that. And I, I feel for those in that, in that position, I don't mean to make light of it. But if you get past that point, you get to a point where the two incomes are simply too, not that it was ever the case for us, but I, I do see this out in the wild. Oftentimes the two incomes, especially if it's like two professional incomes, it's to maintain certain appearances in the world. It's to have so much disposable income that one is able to... Um, you know, just be able to fill their house with any number of status items and constantly go on exotic travels so you can tell people about it. Not that there's anything wrong with going on exotic travels, but yeah, just 
there gets to be a point where do you really need to have two people working full time? And maybe you do. But maybe you can also think about, well, are there things that we could cut out of our life in order to have more time? Because at the end of the day, to use a cliche, about time, time, it seems, is actually the most important resource. It's the most finite resource. You can't, I mean, I guess you can buy time kind of, but you can't buy more time. You can, you can use money to have access to time, but you can't get more time in your life, I guess. Does that make sense? In any case, we were in a situation where we did not need the two incomes. At that time, actually, it was, it was helping us a lot. Um, as my wife continued in her career and got some raises, it would have mattered less. But it was, it was definitely, it was like having the two jobs put us right on this precipice where we don't have to sacrifice quite as much, but we also have no time. So it got to the point where maybe some sacrifice is worth actually having a life. And that's where we were in 2019. And I quit my job. And then the pandemic happened. And then I've been uh, out of work ever since, maintaining the home, uh, taking care of the kids, uh, taxiing the kids to and fro, essentially being a homemaker, if you will. And it's very funny how, um, for a number of reasons, here in the year 2022, this is still kind of a controversial role to occupy, particularly as a... um, uh, male uh, presenting individual. Now, I know some of our listeners hail from places where, um, oh, I don't know, things might still be a little more cut and dry, a little more Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. But I'm out here in Northern California where we're supposed to be beyond all that. We're supposed to be enlightened. Um there is a gender is a social contract, um, so on and so forth. But it's quite interesting because when you actually put this to the test in the wild, um, results may vary. But uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me just let me just say strictly from um, the being being a man in the world um, to the to this day here in 2022, when Ms. S and I go to uh, social functions. In fact, this happened just at uh, one last weekend. Went over to some people's house for dinner, and when it's a group of people that you don't know very well, everyone wants everyone wants to suss out what everyone else does for a living. So when it comes to me, and when I say either, um, I'll say I'm retired. I'll say I'm between things. I'll say I'm a house husband. I'll say I'm a homemaker. There's always kind of an awkward silence. And sometimes people want to be down and want to be positive about it, but you can still see they're kind of weirded out. Other times people are just straight up weirded out. Um, There's a uh, neighbor of my parents who to this day still like hounds my my mom about me and why I'm not out there crushing it in the corporate world. Um, but anyway, it's just kind of funny because it's supposed to be, you know, uh, we're all, everyone's doing their own thing out here and crazy on the crazy left coast. But, but when you really take things down to brass tacks, when you really push the envelope, people's preconceived notions, um, are still there, are still fairly traditional. But I think it's more though, 
there is the aspect of people being made uncomfortable by a male and female couple where the female has a career and the man is at home. There's that. But I honestly think that people um, are would be uncomfortable with the female being at home, at least in our sphere as well. Because again, the whole mythology is where all everyone is supposed to have a job. Your your worth is your job. Your worth is how much how much money you can create, how much wealth you can create. But again, at a certain point, I ask, for what and why? Um, we want for nothing here in the the um, sensational household. I mean, of course, yeah. I, I don't even say it's fair to say. I, mean, I was going to say, yeah, I'd love to be like eating caviar all day long with a golden spoon or something. But that's I don't even like. That's not even something that interests me. Like literally, we have the money to do what we want to do to like have the hobbies we want to have to occasionally go out here or there to take a trip once in a while, whatever. I don't really know. There's not, I mean, how, how much more do you need and how much more time do you want to give away to get there? And that's one thing that we do have a lot of these days is time. So that's been nice. Anyway, the whole point of this is supposed to be going down to the origin of why I'm now looking at substitute teaching. So for quite a while, I was comfortable with the, uh, not working outside the home role. But our children are getting older. Our oldest is a senior in high school. Our youngest just started high school. For the first time in years, they're both going to the same school, so it only takes me like 10 minutes to get them to school in the morning versus like this hour-long odyssey that it was the last few years. Kids are older. They don't require as much constant uh, assistance from me. Um, The time period of the day where they're gone, that school day, Time period goes by fast anyway. I don't really get a lot done. Um, I find myself at loose ends more lately. And I've found myself um, with less um, constant need from the kids. Also, the older they get, the more they're able to kind of help out around. I'm not solely doing all the home care. Um, On one hand, you'd think, well, that's great. Now you just have all this free time and you don't have a job and you're kicking back. But it doesn't really work like that. I found that um, as much as as working all the time and having no free time is a drag, um, having nothing but free time, not that I have nothing but free time, but, you know, having an abundance of free time, having nothing um, to create tension against that free time becomes a bit of a drag too. And I found myself accomplishing less and less. And by accomplishing, I don't mean, you know, uh, getting a job and making a lot of money. I just mean like doing things I want to do. I, I, I feel like I have less time to, to do what I want to do. Um, I feel utterly bored with most of my hobbies. I don't even, most of the time, like I, I just lately, you know, I've typically enjoyed stuff like uh, video games, like, you know, watching different streaming content on, on, on my television. Uh, Watching professional wrestling, watching UFC, watching football, all that stuff. Oh, I still, football and UFC is easy because it's like a once a weekend, you know, boom, you, you get it out of your system. Like th- those are kind of easier. But this, the kind of manic, um, persistent hobbies that you, you're doing on a daily basis, I just end up not doing it. I end up not, not really doing any downtime during the week lately. I don't know. It's weird. So I kind of felt, felt at loose ends. I've been feeling like some sort of lifestyle change. Maybe helpful, maybe in order. Yet at the same time, I obviously don't want to go to those dark days of when Ms. S and I were both working full time. That's when I kept seeing um, advertisements for uh, have a bachelor's degree, become a substitute. Ah, easy for me to say, become a substitute teacher. And it's not quite that easy as the ads say, but the, these are the ads they had around town all last school year. 
And I just happened to have um, completed my bachelor's degree after many years of leaving it incomplete. I saw that with the pandemic, I had an easy, uh, it was an easy striking distance of taking a couple online classes, and I did. So now I have a college degree, and I thought, hmm, I have experience with kids. I, I raised my own two kids uh, quite extensively. I was home with them you know, when they were little, went back to work for a few years. But generally, I've always been the parent that was home, did a lot of classroom volunteering. But I get along with kids. I've always gotten along with kids. I get along, I don't know if I get along with kids better than adults, but I, I understand kids. I think I've never, I feel like I'm such a flawed person and I've had so many personal struggles. I've never felt comfortable becoming that mean adult that knows better than everyone else and, and is like the oh, respect my authority and all that stuff. That doesn't appeal to me. I, I don't mean because I'm going to like let a bunch of kids run wild and do crazy stuff, but I just, I've been able to be empathetic with kids because I understand what it's like as a kid. I remember what it was like to be, to be a kid. I remember how miserable that was. I've never felt the need to sell out and side with like, well, it might've been miserable, but the adults were right about all that respect and authority stuff. The adults don't are as clueless as kids. They don't know what they're doing. Like, so we should all learn to like learn from each other and learn how to get along and I don't know. I'm not, I'm not meaning that to sound as namby and pamby as it is, but I, I, I'm just saying I empathize with children. I understand where they're coming from. I do remember those years. Um, and uh, I refuse to ever become a 100% bonafide phony adult. Of course, there are times when you need to uh, bust out some of that adult responsibility. But just the kind of Archie Bunker, like yelling at walls guy that thinks he knows everything is in charge of everyone. That's not me. And I feel that that has served me well interfacing with the under 18 set. Um, So anyway, I thought maybe this would be a good fit. And that coupled with the fact that um, substitute teacher is a very slacker friendly job. There's not a lot of commitment. You, You don't have to deal with the the, the belligerent parents, uh, you, you know, you don't, you don't have to grade papers. You leave at the end of the day. And I did a little more sniffing around and I found out that it's like basically the way that sub demand is right now and the way that everything's set up, you know, you get a lot of your jobs online, this, that, and the third, as one full-time teacher friend of mine put it, you'll pretty much be able to work as much or as little as you want. So if that's true, that's great because, yeah, there's certain weeks where I have nothing going on and I wouldn't mind working all five days a week. And there's other weeks where CEO uh, wouldn't want to be in. I'm not coming in. Um, that appeals to me greatly. Um, so, yeah, just something to create a little bit of tension in my schedule. Um, it'll create a little bit of extra pocket money. Um, just thought like it'd be a uh, worthwhile addition to the Life Sensational. And that is why I went down this path. That is why I started looking into the possibility of substitute teaching. But again, it was a very, you know, as I first started telling people, I was thinking about this, everyone's like, oh, what grade are you going to do? What school are you going to do? And it's like, I have no idea. I'm just trying to get the, the, the credential first, the qualifications. Then I will look at that next step because I have no idea what it entails. And I'm still kind of there. But so here's the thing. I can't remember where I was at the last time I spoke to you all. But um, I basically started this process in August, and it took until about October for everything to be done. And this is where we can all shake our fist and rail against bureaucracy. But it just kind of—I I expected it to take a long time because it's just—you know—you're a person trying to enter a system, and it requires a lot of—you know—I had to get my fingerprints done. I had to uh, prove that I didn't have tuberculosis, et cetera, et cetera. So all these things, like none of this stuff, is is done instantly. You know, it all takes time. Um, 
So starting the process, I knew it would take a few months to get through that state level certification, but get through it, I did. And I was through it all by last week. And last week I was told someone from the district is going to call you, the actual school district that I'm going to be working for, Napa Valley Unified School District, and they will set up signing the final papers and you will be working by next week. And next week was this week. And a person from the district did in fact call me and they told me that uh, I needed to come in to sign what are called I-9 papers to prove that like I'm a citizen of the United States and can work, which is funny because I'd heard that like the borders were open and anyone could could take a job, could take my job, could take your job, but apparently it's, uh, I couldn't even get this job. So we're, we're going we're gonna to get into that uh, uh, now. But anyway, I had to go um, sign these papers to prove I was who I was, et cetera, et cetera. And they were like, well, for identification purposes, you can bring a passport which don't judge because I have been judged for this before. I do not have. I have never traveled internationally. I've never been out of the United States. Um, when I worked at that full-time job I hated, I worked with a bunch of uh, damned millennials who are all obsessed with world travel, and they would ridicule me to no end for my lack of world travel. I, I know nothing about the world or myself for this lack of world travel. Um, you know, don't uh, give any credence to the fact that I traveled throughout the great majority of the United States as a teenager, um, taking a band. I mean, I didn't take it myself, but like as part of a band going on a tour of the United States in the days before navigation, before the internet, we had to make all these arrangements over the phone with strangers. We had to use maps to get around. That means nothing. I didn't learn anything about the world or any different kinds of people or anything. No international travel to millennial hipster resorts. That's how you learn about yourself, and you learn about the world. You can tell I'm bitter about this subject, but I do not have a passport, so I could not bring a passport in for uh, uh, identification. Um, what I could bring in was my California driver's license and uh, a secondary piece of identification, such as a social security card, such as a uh, certified copy of my birth certificate. I happen to have the birth certificate handy, and I had my driver's license, of course. So I said, all right, I'll be right over. And I went right over, and I was getting out of the car. And as I got out of the car, I realized, you know what? I haven't looked at my driver's license in a long time. Long time. I should make sure it's not expired. It's not expired, but I should make sure it's not expired. And I looked at it. Sure enough, I've been driving around with an expired license since August. So I had to go in and tell the woman, I'm totally here to sign all the papers, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do it because I have an expired license. And she was like, yep, you need to come back when you get not only your license renewed, but when the physical copy of the license arrives. So I had to spend the rest of the day getting the documents I needed to, I, I already, because everything was falling into place and because I I got so much done with all the different paperwork for the substitute teaching, I was, get, I was starting to get a little manic get a little high on myself. And I was like, you know, since I'm getting all this done, once I'm done with this, I'm going to go to the DMV and get a real ID because I've been meaning to do that. But now I just had to go to the DMV no matter what. So I decided I'm just going to not just renew my normal license. I'm going to renew my license, but turn it into a real ID. So I had to scramble around to get the paperwork for that, which wasn't like too much. Um, but you know, everything takes time. And then I finally went down there and, um, the Napa DMV is crazy. The Napa DMV there's no one in there. And I don't mean there's no one working there. There's the same amount of people working it that you'll see at any DMV, but there's no customers. There were like five people in there when I, when I went in. 
And uh, yeah, the whole process took 20 minutes. It was very odd. But uh, hey, I'm not going to complain. But now I'm just sitting here, twisting in the wind, waiting for uh, the physical copy of my identification. So I continue can continue my quest to start employment as a substitute teacher. So that's the long and the short of it. I hadn't really given a fully coherent, all-encompassing accounting on the show to date. Part of it, part of it, because I didn't really know if it, I was going to go through with it. I, you know, I, this all seems so vague, but now it's becoming real. So there, I share it with you, and I took up a good chunk of the episode. But we're still going to um, hang out a little bit longer and continue talking about what we've talked about for several episodes in a row now, which is my personal history with home video gaming. Folks, last when last we spoke, I believe we left... Um, let me pause one second to take a sip of this Fruit Punch Gatorade. Uh, not, not a show sponsor, but I... And I don't always drink... Uh, is this considered an energy drink? I don't always drink these strange drinks, but when I do, it's Gatorade. I'm just very thirsty, and uh, it claims it's a thirst quencher, so... Thank you for indulging me. Um, I believe when we last spoke, I wrapped things up kind of with the glory days of the Atari 2600, the Sears VCS, the Sears Telegame System, whatever you want to call it. That early 80s Atari-based system that was the bedrock of my home gaming. But by around 1984... 1985, um, things were getting a little stale with my relationship with Atari, my relationship with video games. I was starting to notice kind of the, uh, let's just get right out there and say it, like the piss-poor quality of most of the Atari games. Even the ones I enjoyed playing, um, as you got a little bit older and as the system got a little bit older, you started to realize the limitations. Like I said, when I was a starry-eyed youth in 1982, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me there was a difference between arcade Pac-Man and 2600 Pac-Man. But as the years wore on, I started to get it. I started to realize these games are all just like little dots and pixels with, you know, moving around a weird colored screen, not doing much. And uh, you can only play these games for so long before they become mind-numbingly repetitive and boring. So while up until that 85, 86 uh, period, the 2600 and its analogs remained ubiquitous in my household and in the households of most people I knew, they started to recede in their magic, recede in their gravitas, to where they almost became like an obligatory... You know how you know, everyone in the 80s had a speak and spell? Everyone in the 80s had a Simon Says... Everyone in the 80s had one of those weird little um, gimmicks where there was like um, it was like a little handheld game where there was water inside, like a little ball, and you pressed a button and it shot the ball up around in the water. You know what I'm talking about? We all had these 80s artifacts lying around our room, our friend's room, and you'd pick it up and you'd screw around with it for like five minutes and then toss it into the pile of dirty socks or whatever. And the Atari was quickly entering that pantheon, at least from my perspective. Um... I think the Atari, my, my last big hurrah with the Atari, bringing it all the way back to Pitfall, was uh, a Pitfall 2 game came out. And I had to have been playing this game around 85. 
Because I actually remember my grandfather, the infamous grandfather that got enraged when I was playing with uh, Tommy, the atomic-powered robot, in his presence. Um, he was actually watching my brother and I play Pitfall 2 at my parents' house, at my family's house. I think, honestly, one of the last times we ever saw him there. So, yeah, and he died in 86. Um, yeah, so this is probably 85. And I, I just looked it up, actually, and that game came out in 84. So this makes sense. Anyway, one of the last 2600 games I remember buying, and as I mentioned last um, episode, I don't remember us purchasing a lot of uh, games. I do remember going to Toys R Us and purchasing that Pitfall 2 game. I don't remember the occasion. I don't remember why we were allowed to do it, but I do remember buying it. Anyway... Pitfall 2 brought it all the way back to where I said the original Pitfall was kind of that game that drew drew me in to 2600 when I first saw it. Pitfall 2 was where I started to realize there was a future for these games that was never going to be, uh, I just said realized, but there was a future for these games that was never going to be realized on the 2600. But this game gave a hint of what was maybe possible because you no longer, with Pitfall 2, if you ever played it, I don't remember it being like that... Um, that out there in the wild, as far as seeing it, a lot of people's houses or whatever. Um, but Pitfall 2 took a lot of the mechanics from the original game, but turned it into like a multi-screen platformer where you weren't just going um, uh, horizontally across the screen. You could go up and down, down ladders into subterranean caverns. You could fly on a balloon that came by. Um, you ran into characters from the cartoon um, if you remember, like Pitfall had like a niece named Rhonda or something. I think there was the pet Quick Claw. If I remember correctly, they were in that game, or I hallucinated that they were in that game. But in in that game, in primitive form, you know, it wasn't like you know later video games where you saw them as full blown characters. You'd see a little collection of pixels, and it was supposed to be Quick Claw. So yeah, I think he was like shivering in a corner or something. But um, this game just added so much more dimension. But it also strained what the 2600 could do because there was only so much the 2600 could do. Um, so again, there's a glimmer of promise, but it's like, yeah, but this promise is never actually going to happen with this toy because this toy can't... This is like the absolute most this toy can do is present to you a game like this. And while this game is cool in theory, it's not quite there yet. And so again, um, video game fandom, home video game fandom for me at that time just became more of a passive thing. I'd, if I saw an Atari 2600 controller on the ground, I'd pick it up and give it a spin for a second, and then I'd throw it aside and move on to uh, a hula hoop or something. I don't know. Um, but uh, there's another little aside from that era um, that I, I can't remember if I touched on this last time, so apologies, apologies in advance if I'm being repetitive. But uh, there were these other systems that I knew were floating out there. And I do remember I talked about this last time because I talked about thinking that an Intellivision was like growing in my dumpster. But but those systems, the Intellivision, the ColecoVision, even the Atari 5200, you would see commercials, little advertisements and comic books. I remember there was a 5200 television commercial that I was very taken with as a kid where the guy is playing Ms. Pac-Man and then he pauses it. He's like, see you later, Ms. Pac-Man, I gotta get a drink. And he like pauses the game and it's like this electrifying, how did he, he paused it. How did he pause it? Um, which now is like the most just mediocre feature of any home video game system, pausing. But he paused it! Um, 
I never actually saw any of these systems in the wild. I never knew anyone who had them. So kudos to you if you did. I always thought maybe there'd be some some greater real estate, some some bigger bangs, uh, you know, a, a, another high from these systems, but I never encountered them, so I didn't get to experience it. Um, so things are pretty doldrumy for me to the point where by 1985, my biggest video game memory from that period is what I talked about a few episodes back was not even playing a video game. It was just using that uh, Sears telegames cover that went over the console, flipping it upside down, using it as a wrestling ring to have my Martian Manhunter action figure wrestle. I think it was Firestorm action figure, both from that same DC line. Having them wrestle and hearing my mom answer the phone and hearing that my grandfather had died. That's my biggest video game memory from that era because the video games were dead for me. Um, And then the action figures died for me. So that was a hard year, 85. That's probably why, probably why, 86 is a very pivotal year in my childhood hobbies. Comic books blew up for me in 86. Video games blew up for me again in 86 as we're about to get into. We can talk about the comic books another time. But uh, that is when I really came of age in my comic book collecting was 1986. But as it pertains to video games, 1985, 86, a incredibly momentous event took place in my personal history. And that event was the advent of the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America. And I think we're going to tap out a few minutes early this week because there's no real point in getting going on this topic. But we will resume next week. We're really going to get into the meat of this video game stuff by way of my experiences with the NES. Um, There's going to be plenty to talk about, so we will kick things off with that next time on Very Special Episode 93 of the podcast. But this has been Very Special Episode 92. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week. Until then, it's me, it's me. It's Mr. Sensational Gino V signing off. The fun is back! Oh yes, Siree! It's the 2600 from Atari! It's the video system with classics galore! From space invaders to cars that roar! A real hit joystick controls the screen! Solaris is hot and midnight magic's mean! And one more thing, it's got a special low price! Under 50 bucks! 50 bucks! Now isn't that nice? The fun is back! Oh yes, Siree! It's the 2600 from Atari!